the idea that there is, you know, an older America and we know what that's like is just false. There's you know, many different kinds of experiences as people grow older. Something that's powerful, I think, in covering age is just to write about older people. Age is also part of diversity, and I would like to see more reporters uh, understand that. Hi, everyone. This is Peter Caldas, the CEO of the American Society on Aging, and welcome to Bylines. Paula Spann writes the New Old Age column about aging and caregiving for the New York Times. Prior to that, she spent 16 years as a New York correspondent for the Washington Post style section and a staff writer for the Washington Post magazine. Her book, When the Time Comes, published in 2009, followed several families caring for aging parents. She also currently teaches at the Columbia School of Journalism. Welcome to Bylines, Paula. Thanks. It's nice to be with you. Paula, you've been covering the aging beat for at least a decade. In what ways uh, has your coverage evolved? It started with a real focus on caregiving. Uh, This column, The New Old Age, began as a blog started by Jane Gross in, I think, 2008. And initially, our coverage was very much on family caregivers who, as you know, are a huge part of caring for older people in this country and so unrecognized and largely unsupported. And we were talking to them mostly about their parents and older relatives. But as time went on, first of all, we began to understand better that many of the people who were caregivers were older adults themselves caring for even older adults in this time of extended lifespans. And that there was a lot to talk about beyond caregiving. And so the coverage for New Old Age, which is now a twice-monthly column, the coverage has broadened. And so now we write about lots of things like work, because a lot of older adults are still working uh, or wish they were. Uh, We talk about age discrimination uh, and discrimination against disabled people in Uh, retirement communities, and we talk about retirement itself. We look at a lot of the evolving research on purpose. We cover health, a lot of attention to health and testing and treatment and over-testing and over-treatment. We talk about scams. We, We just take a broader view of what's of interest about this huge segment of society. And lately, of course, we've been writing just almost exclusively about the impact of COVID-19. Now, Paula, the broader take on the beat that you've been covering, is is that a result of your readership? Uh, Do you find that more people are interested in that diversity of of topics? How how did it evolve? That's kind of mysterious, isn't it? We we just kept finding interesting things to talk about that weren't exactly about caregiving, and we just kept writing about them, and people kept responding And also, we switched from being a blog to a column, and that meant that we needed to take a broader view. We were writing less often. So instead of being in three times a week with one short thing, we were in every other week with something that had to be a little broader. So I don't know. Journalism can be a little mysterious and organic and unpredictable. You you sort of follow your nose. What's interesting? 
what's going on out there? What are people telling us? What are we learning? Well, let's write about that. And my editor uh, said, okay. <laughs> That's great. If you were to advise other writers or authors or reporters who are, who are new to aging, what would you say is the most important thing to keep front and center while reporting? Hmm. I wonder, I guess a couple of things. One is extreme heterogeneity of this population. So I'm 71 uh, and people who are 71 can be severely disabled or they can be fully active and working full time. Uh, and of course, people can be disabled at any age. So the idea that there is you know, an older America, and we know what that's like, is just false. There's many different kinds of uh, experiences as people grow older. And many of them are very positive. You know, we, we need really to get past this notion that we have as a society, and that probably most societies have, that that age means diminishment and sorrow and closing down of one's horizons and one's connections. And that's so often not true. So I guess what geriatricians say about if you've seen one 85-year-old, you've seen one 85-year-old, I guess journalists need to keep that in mind too. Also, I just point out that just while I'm on this topic, that part of what drives this great difference between people's experience Part of it is luck and genes, but a lot of it is what uh, re researchers and scholars call social determinants of health. So a lot of what drives this difference is things like poverty, education, uh, race and gender, ethnicity, um, so that the experiences of one group of older people can be very different from another for things that are quite outside their control. You know, I love that you brought up this notion that older adults are not all just sort of one monolith. Uh, and I, and I want to explore that a little bit more because I think the perception in the media is one of, well, it tends to be quite ageist. So I'm wondering if, if we could focus a little bit on, on ageism in, in, in writing, do you have thoughts on how we could most easily change some of the ageist language we see? Uh, I, I wish I had some good solution. I don't know except just to keep on a personal level slugging away at it. I, I am at everybody's scold. I'm in an exercise class and the teacher says, just imagine that you're 21 and you're floating down the Seine on a romantic Paris, you know, Paris night and I'm the one in the front row that says, wait, you can have a romantic night on the Seine in Paris if you're not 21, if you're 61, if you're 71, if you're 91. Um, so I'm just in everybody's face about it all the time uh, on social media and in my personal relationships. I don't know a better way to do it. And of course, the way you write, you know, you also have to be careful about that. But I don't think a lot of the ageism is coming really from journalists and writers. I think it's just endemic in our society. When it comes to language, my personal conviction is it almost doesn't matter as much as we think because what people are reacting to really isn't the words, it's the idea. So we could say senior, we can say 
uh, golden age or to use a now discredited awful word from the past. We can say older adults, which is probably the current um, standard, but it almost doesn't matter what we say because what people fear is not the word, it's being old itself. And so the only way to really change it is to make people be less afraid of this phase of life that everyone, if you're lucky, will experience. And being ageist in our thinking, as well as our words, is just discriminating against ourselves or our future selves. So I don't know how to, I don't think the language is as important as our convictions about aging as a negative experience. And do you think that the anti-ageist movement, as we'll call it, has made any inroads into changing public opinion? I don't know how to measure that. I think it probably, just the fact that there is an anti-ageism movement, and I see it here and there, uh, is probably some evidence that it's making a difference. But I don't know how to measure it. I, I don't think we've really gone very far in convincing people that it's okay to be old. I use the word old people um, for myself. I say I'm an old person. I don't make little jokes about I'm not old. I'm as young as I feel. Age is just a number. I'm old. It's fine. I'm happy. It's good. I'm working. I'm productive. I'm old. These things are not mutually exclusive. So uh, whether we've really made, whether we've really changed attitudes, I don't know. Well, let's talk a little bit again about some of the content that you've written about. Uh, It's quite broad and expansive. Where do you go generally for research or to suss out trends? Well, I am sometimes scrambling around at the 11th hour trying to figure out, ah, what's the next column? Um, But the thing that makes this possible is that we actually know a whole lot about what happens to people as they age. There is not a dearth of information on this. So I look at all the medical journals, not all. I look at a lot of the medical journals. I, I get them in my inbox, Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA. New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of the American Geriatric Society, uh, and some others. Um, I look at the research done by by think tanks, by the Urban Institute, uh, by the Retirement Center at Boston College, by the Retirement Center at NYU, no, at the New School, sorry, by the Retirement Center at the New School. Um, I hear from readers. Uh, There are comments on the New Old Age column, and usually there are about 150 or so on an average uh, response. And if you say something that people really uh, take exception to or really support, you could get two or 300. So I read every single one of them to see what people are thinking, what they're going through. Um, Nobody who has uh, responsibility for an aging parent or who is going through aging issues themselves around me, my personal connections, no one is safe from my saying, hmm, would you like to talk to me about that for a column? Uh, But there's a lot of information that's kind of in the air. And are there authors or writers that you look to for inspiration? Not particularly. Well, that, that's interesting to me. Is, is that because we just don't have um, sort of enough of a, of a, of a field of, of journalism in aging? And journalism about aging is still pretty nascent, I think. Um, mm. You know, I pay attention to people like Louise Aronson, who had a, a big bestseller with her book, Elderhood. 
Um, but there are not a lot of popular books uh, and popular writers about age. Publishers, aside from Atul Gawande and Louise Aronson, I, I don't think there's been a best-selling book about age. Publishers don't even really like to write, uh, to publish books about aging. They think they won't sell. They think, without, and not without some reason, that people don't want to think or pay attention to this. There are a few exceptions. So mostly I'm looking at uh, scholars and researchers to see what they're up to more than I'm looking to other writers. That said, I do pay attention to um, Kaiser Health News, which publishes a fair amount of work about uh, aging and um, the National Association for Healthcare Writers um, talks about aging. But mostly I think I'm going to the researchers. They seem to be the ones to me who are uh, ahead of the trends. And translating that research into something perhaps accessible and readable and useful is, is an extraordinary uh, effort. Uh, so thank you for doing that. <laughs> well, I tell them when we're on the phone, I tell them that I'm their translator. And then the minute they say things like comorbidities, I say, wait, no one is going to understand what that means. Can we just say multiple illnesses or several conditions at the same time? And they say, oh, sure, because they talk to each other and not to the public. Uh, and so I'm the bridge, yes. Yeah, as you probably know, at the American Society on Aging, we recently digitized our generation's journal. And um, I often talk to our new editor and explain it's important to retain, you know, the integrity of the academic pieces. But at the same time, we need these to be readable and usable by some of the field. And often there's a gap. Um, so again, I appreciate your work for doing that. Well, but Generations takes a different viewpoint, right? You're not just publishing data, but the people that are publishing data have this language that they speak and a sort of format that they follow. And you very frequently have to say, no one is going to understand this. What do you mean? How can we put this into colloquial English? Uh, and they're often very grateful that someone will do this. They know they can't talk to the public. They're often grateful that someone will do this. Although I will say, Peter, that geriatricians as a group are getting very savvy about using social media. It occurred to them, you know, a decade ago that there are enough, not enough geriatricians in the United States to care for our aging population. And there will not be for the foreseeable future. And so if they want to amplify their expertise and their messages, they have to find a way to reach a broad audience. They can't do it patient by patient and family by family. There aren't enough of them. So there are uh, groups of uh, people at different medical schools um, who took to Twitter very early, who took to podcasts and blogs early, who are on Facebook, who are just part of the discourse because they have expertise and they need to get it out. So it's wonderful that the New York Times uh, supports your column. I'm wondering, though, uh, what you have to say to many mm, local publications who, for a variety of budgetary reasons, are cutting uh, staff who are covering the aging beat or consolidating it entirely. Uh, what kind of impact do you think that has on um, coverage of aging? Well, it has impact on coverage of everything. Your local zoning issues, your local health issues, 
who is holding your local officials accountable. Um, but part of that is that specialized coverage of almost anything, aging, the environment, um, starts to, to seem like a luxury. Uh, I think the best way to try to push back against that is to point out what proportion of your readers or people in your coverage area are 65 or 60 and older, which information is available from uh, the Census Bureau, um, and to show that this is not a minority concern, that it has broad implications for towns, cities, states, and the nation. And so it's, I, I don't expect that a lot of smaller news organizations are going to be able to dedicate a person to do this. But it can certainly be part of their health coverage, part of their cultural coverage, part of their budget coverage. And you know, something that's powerful, I think, in covering age is just to write about older people. So in the same way that reporters are slowly learning that if you need to include five or six people in a story, they should not all be white guys. Um, the same way, they should not all be under 40. Age is also part of diversity. And I would like to see more reporters uh, understand that. But there are, given that this is a time of real shrinking and implosion for uh, a number of news organizations, there also are a lot of new ones springing up, some of them nonprofit. So you will see groups like ProPublica do magnificent work on nursing homes and prescriptions and doctors and things that directly affect older people. And there are other nonprofit news organizations around that are trying to take up the slack, like Kaiser Health News. So it's not entirely a grim picture. Those are that's a wonderful perspective. It also provides some tips, I think, for a lot of our readers and listeners who are professionals in the aging services sector and what they can expect from their local uh, media or local newspapers. What other advice would you give? to these, uh, to our membership about working with journalists in the aging sector? Well, I get a lot of news ideas, a lot of my column ideas from people who are in various ways working with older adults. I remember going, I speak at various groups uh, frequently, and I was talking to some um, hospice and palliative care uh, people um, who said to me, uh, even when people have advanced directives, they tell us that they're in a lawyer's safe or they're in a drawer somewhere or they, don't, they haven't updated them in 20 years and the person who's supposed to make decisions for them if they're incapacitated is dead and could you write something about that? And I said, yes, that's a good idea. I don't think people have thought about that. People think, well, I've got my paperwork done. I'm finished. They don't think about how people have to have access to it. So people who are working in various kinds of elder care, uh, either in institutions or in organizations, are great sources of information. So, And reporters are usually happy to hear from you. What we don't pay much attention to is people who are promoting products or people who are promoting an event. If it's very local, a local paper or a local news site, and you're telling them about an event at an assisted living facility, um, they might use that. But for people who are covering a broader area, um, a region, a state, nationally, uh, we're not interested in who just joined your board. We're not interested in who your new director is. 
We're not interested in an event, but we're interested in trends that you see, problems that you encounter, and that you would be willing to talk to us about. And so I encourage members to just you know, find out who some of the reporters are that whose work you like and who seem to be uh, amenable to writing about old people uh, and be in touch with them selectively when you have an idea that you think they could elaborate on and use. They will be happy to hear from you. We are not some ivory tower here. We're stressed, especially now, and but so is everybody. And um, But we're always looking for ideas. So if, if you have a good idea, pass it on. Well, Paula, um, I have time for just one more question for you. And uh, speaking of ideas, uh, I'd like to ask you about your take on how uh, journalists have been covering the presidential campaign, given that both candidates are well in their 70s and how the candidates have effectively been weaponizing ageism. Uh, But I'd like your take on it. Boy, I don't know. I'm I'm sort of edging out of my areas of expertise here. I think that most reporters have been extremely careful about this, and they will report what one or another candidate or their proxies say. But I have not seen political reporters really being ageist themselves or questioning competence uh, as a result of people's age. Most of the – a lot of the people, including Bernie Sanders – including Hillary Clinton when she ran. A lot of people were past Medicare eligibility age, um, and it didn't really come up much. So I think they're hanging fire. Uh, Of course, the candidates themselves will use whatever comes to hand. But I I don't think the press has really um, been taken on this one. I I think we're standing back and not – we're mentioning people's ages – we're mentioning that both candidates are in their 70s, and so were a number of people in the earlier primaries. Um, I don't see us really falling for ageism ourselves this time. Well, thank you. Thank you, Paul, and thank you for sharing your, your views today on Bylines. We really appreciated it. It's been fun. Thanks. And uh, join us again next time for another episode of Bylines. <laughs>